The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. And now let's hear the word of God from Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice." And the holy God shows Himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who will quit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go like up, up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them and the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. 
And for all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away, and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions they roar, they growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would speak to us this morning through your word. That you would shatter us and renew us and remake us again as your people who have received your promises and who you call to walk with you all of our days. Be present among us, God, we pray. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Downtown Church, have you ever seen a movie or read a book that had a surprise ending? Uh, A story where all of a sudden there was a sudden turn that you didn't see coming. I promise I'm not going to ruin any of these stories by telling you the ending. But have you ever seen a movie like Sixth Sense or Frozen or read the Harry Potter series? You know there are moments where you go, whoa, that caught me off guard. I did not see that coming. Isaiah 5 starts with that kind of a story. A story that begins and then catches us off guard in a way that we did not expect. And so as we begin this morning, let's attend to that story and see how the strange plot twist in Isaiah 5 might call us in new ways and in new directions in our life with God. You see, Isaiah 5.1 begins with a story that's actually a love song. Let me sing for my beloved my love song, says the prophet. This is the language of love poetry. It reminds us of the song of songs and that book's celebration of love between a man and a wife. And this beloved, Isaiah 5 tells us, had a vineyard, a vineyard that he invested in, and a vineyard that he labored over. This beloved worked hard to create this vineyard so that it would produce good fruit, good grapes. The text tells us that he dug it and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with choice vines and he waited for it to produce the good fruit that he longed for. And then here's the first unexpected twist in the story. Because when this lover shows up, instead of finding good grapes, he finds wild or sour grapes. Grapes that are worthless for making the wine that he longs for. And so in verse 3, he turns, the beloved turns, to the people of God and addresses them directly. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. And the beloved and the men of Judah and Jerusalem are all part of a society made up of farmers. And so they know when the beloved says, what else could I have done for this vineyard? That the answer is nothing. There's nothing that the beloved could have done to make this vineyard to produce better fruit. The problem must be inherent in the vineyard itself. And everyone knows it. And the people of God are invited to render that verdict on the vineyard themselves. And now, says the beloved in verse 5, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. 
And here again, this is just common sense for farmers. If you invest in the vineyard and it produces nothing but sour grapes, eventually you tear it down. And that's exactly what the beloved says. He says, I'll, I'll, I'll remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I'll break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I'll make it a waste, a place where animals graze. Because the point of a vineyard is good grapes. And if the vineyard won't produce, then its only end is destruction. And then in verse 7 comes the sudden twist. The plot change we didn't see coming. Because the beloved reveals that the people of God who had been invited to condemn the vineyard are themselves the vineyard. And the beloved is none the less than God himself. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And God went looking for justice. And behold, bloodshed. For righteousness. And behold, the cry of the oppressed. God, the song declares, called for himself a people. Precisely so that they would produce a certain kind of fruit. The fruit of justice and righteousness. And when God comes looking Instead of finding that fruit, he finds the bitter fruit of violence and oppression and injustice and unrighteousness. And the end result, as the entire chapter makes clear, is judgment and death. Isaiah 5 begins with the beloved calling a people together to bear much fruit. And ends with that same beloved calling his people's enemies, inviting his people's enemies to come and destroy his people because of their failures. We did not see this coming. This is a strange story. This is a dark tale. And as we read it this morning, it raises big questions for us. What kind of people are these? What kind of God is this? And what might it mean for us today? And I want to suggest that as we ask those questions of this story, we can see at least four things. The first thing that we can see is that our divine lover has invested in his people so that they will bear the fruit of justice and righteousness. Our divine lover has invested in his people precisely so they will bear the fruit of justice and righteousness. This is a love song. It begins with a lover, yes. But this lover is not disinterested. This lover does not love without expecting a return. Instead, the text tells us that the vineyard, that the, the, the beloved loves the vineyard, invests in the vineyard so that it will bear fruit. And the text tells us that God loves us and calls us and invests in us so that we also will bear fruit, the fruit of justice and righteousness. That's why God has called together a people so that you'll produce precisely this just and righteous fruit. Now that may sound strange to us, but it's actually written into the story of the Bible from the very beginning. In Genesis 12, we learn that God is calling Abraham to be a special family through whom he will bring blessing to all the nations of the world. And then in Genesis 18, God explains how this Abrahamic family will be his tool for bringing blessing to all the world. And this is what he says. God says, I have chosen Abraham that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing justice and righteousness so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. From the very beginning, the Bible says God has called out a people to bear this just and righteous fruit. That's what we're called for. 
That's why God invests in us, is for this fruit. And that's why it's so ironic that some in the church today seem to think that talk about justice is a distraction from the gospel. The problem with that idea is that the Bible tells us that justice and righteousness is at the heart of what God's doing in our world. It's at the heart of what God's doing in among his people. It's at the heart of the gospel itself. But what is justice and righteousness? You know, when I think of that word justice, so often the first idea that comes to mind, I picture a blind you know, Lady Justice with her scales in the courtroom. And, and when I think of righteousness, I think of like personal piety, you know, kind of being a good, a good person kind of in my inward life. Or maybe we think about justice as primarily something that, that we connect with systems. We think of just laws and just systems. And, and all of these ideas are part of the justice and righteousness puzzle, but they don't get to the heart. I think if we want to get to the heart of what God means when he says he wants justice and righteousness, we look at Job who God says was exceptional in all the earth. This is what Job says about himself as a just and righteous person. He says, I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and snatched their victims from their teeth. That's what justice and righteousness looks like walking through our world. That's the kind of fruit that God wants from his people. Not primarily lady justice blind with her scales or personal piety, but more like what Cornell West says when he says justice is what love looks like in public, not simply an abstract concept to regulate institutions, but a fire in the bones to promote the well-being of all. John Goldingay the Old Testament scholar puts it this way, justice and righteousness is about the faithful exercise of power in the community. That's what God is looking for from us. That's the fruit for which he has called us out. This is our story. We are the vineyard and God has invested in us to produce such just and righteous fruit. But second, although God gives us everything we need to produce such fruit, Instead, we've actively produced the fruit of injustice and unrighteousness. God says he went looking for justice and he found bloodshed, blood flowing in the streets. And he came looking for righteousness and he heard the outcry of those who were suffering under oppression. It's, it's not as if God gave his people the just and righteous test and they did their best and they ended up earning an F. No, it's like God passed out the justice and righteous test and we pulled out a lighter, set the test on fire, and tried to burn down the school. God came looking for fruit, and we have given him the exact opposite. And the rest of the chapter unpacks what this unjust, unrighteous fruit looks like. 5.8 pronounces woe on those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you're made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. This is pointing to God's people's participation in economic practices, ways of producing and buying and selling and lending that allow some to amass more and more by pushing the poor off of their land and out of their resources. In verses 11 and 12 and 22 through 23, 
Isaiah takes aim at people who produce injustice and unrighteousness through their pleasure-seeking. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. And then again in verse 22, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Here Isaiah takes aim at drunkenness, yes, but not just drunkenness. He's taking aim at the entire culture of pleasure-pursuing, represented by strong drink and big feasts and endless indulgence that inevitably leads to not seeing God's work, and actively depriving the vulnerable and the marginalized of their rights. In verse 20, Isaiah takes aim at those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And in verse 24, he sums it all up by saying, My people have rejected the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Now, in an age in which it's popular among us, to talk about justice and righteousness issues, it's easy to imagine that Isaiah is only talking about the big sinners hiding around uh, dark, smoke-filled boardrooms and figuring out how to actively oppress the poor. But the whole point of the way that this whole story is set up, where the song of the vineyard tricks Israel and Judah into realizing that they are the unjust and unrighteous ones, reminds us that so often we don't realize that we are the ones who produce unjust and unrighteous bitter fruit. This too is us. God has given us, brothers and sisters, also all that we need to produce just and righteous fruit. And so often we have produced the opposite in so many ways. Let me give just a few examples of how we produce unjust, unrighteous fruit. Of course, one way is through our participation in our society's ongoing racism. This is something we talk about a lot in our church, but it's worth repeating. This past week, uh, I ran into two statistics that illustrate ongoing racial injustice in a really powerful way. Because for me, uh, when I think about economics and, and how I can support uh, people in improving economically, uh, two things that I think are key to that are strong families and uh, solid education. But listen to how these two statistics strike right at the heart of that. Recent statistics show that single white parents have more than twice the wealth, on average, of married black parents. And that black household heads with a college degree have about $10,000 less in median net worth than white household heads who never completed high school. Now, what these statistics don't show is that education and family and these things aren't important. What they do show is that the racism that infects our society harms our black and brown brothers even when they do everything right. And that's a horrifying reality to wake up to, to realize that our society produces such bitter fruit. And we can think of all sorts of things that we could do. But the first thing I'm confronted with is that if we're going to bear just and righteous fruit in a racially unjust world, we have to acknowledge that it exists. And the problem is, a third statistic, in 2016, more than 60% of white people 
said that racism did not put barriers in the way of black and brown people anymore. So six out of 10 of us white folks in America aren't even willing to name the problem. In other words, we are guilty of calling something that is evil good. And when we do that, we inevitably end up failing to use our power faithfully in community to bear just and righteous fruit and instead perpetuate unjust and unrighteous fruit. Or think about, secondly, the way that we chase pleasure. This temptation to bear unjust and unrighteous fruit by pursuing our own pleasure is equal access. Rich, poor, people of all backgrounds, we can all get caught up in chasing the next thing. How many times have I got caught up in chasing the next step in my education or the next job promotion or a little bit more money or a little bit more security or the next vacation? How many times have you gotten caught up in chasing those same things? Chasing status symbols, whether they're shoes or clothes or cars or houses. And as we pursue those things and we focus on those pleasures, Isaiah seems to say we inevitably miss what God is doing and end up actively harming our neighbors. John Calvin, when he reads this passage, says that when we get addicted to our own pleasure, we don't know, we forget why God gives us nourishment in the first place. Calvin says we forget that we live, that we may yield worship and obedience to God, and that we may render assistance to our neighbors. But brothers and sisters, our addiction to pleasure so often leads to us just producing bitter, unjust, unrighteous fruit. Or take the issue of sexual sin as one more way we produce rotten fruit in our own lives and on our own day. The Bible is pretty clear. Sexual intimacy that is sweet is a sexual intimacy that takes place between a man and woman who are married in the covenant of marriage. And yet so often we in the church are tempted with our words and our lives to call some other form of sexual intimacy sweet that the Bible labels as bitter, to call some other form of, of sexual intimacy light and good, that God labels dark and wicked. And this happens not least as we are addicted in our society to the evil of pornography, a system that actively enslaves and exploits the bodies of women and men for other people's pleasure. Lord, brothers and sisters, when, when we chase pleasure when we label what is good evil and what is evil good we produce and we have produced and we continue to produce bitter unjust unrighteous fruit and so we see that though god has called a people to produce justice and righteousness all too often we have produced the bitter fruit of injustice and unrighteousness Third, we see in our text that the result of all of this is that the Lord brings judgment against his vineyard, against our injustice and unrighteousness. The language of judgment is throughout this passage. The vineyards that they acquire will wither and produce no fruit. The beautiful houses that they build will lie empty and desolate. The society that they build through their injustice will be overthrown. Death will open wide its mouth. And the end result will be the invasion of the community of God by their enemies. And the people's exile, them being taken from their homes and taken to a faraway land. His judgment is hard to look at. It's hard to hear. It is utterly devastating. Why? Why does the lover, the beloved, the vineyard owner execute such judgment? Well, first of all, because the vineyard owner invested in the vineyard precisely for just and righteous fruit. 
and a vineyard that doesn't produce fruit isn't worth maintaining. In other words, God brings judgment on his people because they fail to do the very thing for which he's called them. It's just logical, the text seems to say, that if we reject the one purpose for which we were called, God's judgment comes. But secondly, God's judgment comes on us in our injustice, in our unrighteousness, not just because of our injustice and unrighteousness, but because of God's own justice and righteousness. This is key. Look here in the text. In the midst of judgment, when the high ones are cast low, our text declares that Yahweh will be exalted. He will be lifted up in justice and righteousness. This is the key. The Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. The reason that the Lord is obsessed with his people's justice and righteousness is because God is obsessed with his own justice and righteousness. God's demand that we produce just and righteous fruit is not arbitrary. The reason he makes those demands lies at the very heart of his own character. Because, as the psalmist says, justice and righteousness are the foundation of God's throne. Because the Lord loves righteousness and justice. God calls the vineyard to produce this fruit because that is who he is. And if his people reject it, he will nevertheless be exalted in righteousness and justice. And that means judgment. And this, too, brothers and sisters, is us. We cannot think that this is all in the past. Again, to quote Calvin, he looks at this text and he looks at the church. And when he sees the church, he says, when you see the church struggling with all sorts of problems, it's witness broken, it's ministry corrupted, it leading to abuse and pain and suffering and all the problems that he saw in the church then and that we see in the church now. He says, all of this is because we have not yielded such fruit as we ought and have been indolent and sluggish. Whenever, therefore, Calvin says, we are justly deprived of those great favors which he has freely bestowed on us. Let us acknowledge the anger of the Lord. In other words, when Calvin read this passage in his day, and we reread it in ours, we find ourselves in Israel's shoes, recognizing that our failures bring God's just judgment. And that's the end of chapter 5. That's the end of the matter. Church, one of my deepest commitments when invited to preach here in our congregation is to, to, to lift up the text in front of me. And the text in front of me begins with the beloved and ends in judgment. And I wrestled long and hard over whether we need to just end there. Maybe we run too quickly past God's anger at our sins. Maybe we just need to sit for a minute in the rubble of the failed vineyard that we have been and that we have created for ourselves. Maybe this is a harsh word that we should linger over. And yet, brothers and sisters, I can't leave us there. I can't leave us there because this is the second week in the season of Easter because we are a people who are currently celebrating the resurrection because we hear this text on the resurrection side of Jesus' death 
for our sakes. And because of that, we can't just leave ourselves, church, with his word of judgment. And that resurrection celebration that we are celebrating right now drives me back to the text. And I remember that although Isaiah 5 has no word but judgment, it is introduced by Isaiah 4, which tells us that the judgment of God is to purify us that the Lord's anger washes us clean, and that in the latter days God will bring back the glory to his people, and he will take up residence among us. Because we're hearing this text during the season of Easter, I go back to Isaiah 5, and I remember that even in the strongest words of judgment, when God announces that he will destroy and devastate his vineyard, he nevertheless calls that vineyard his beloved. The men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And I'm reminded that even when God judges, he judges as a lover who will not give up on his people. Because we're hearing this message in the season of Easter, I'm forced to look ahead in Isaiah when God says that ultimately he will solve the problem of our injustice and unrighteousness by sending his servant. Here is my servant, Isaiah 42 says, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. We look forward in Isaiah because we read this text during the season of Easter and realize that the way this servant will bring justice to victory is not by crushing his unjust people, but by allowing himself to be crushed by our injustice. Isaiah 53 declares this servant was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we were healed out of the anguish of the servant's soul. The many unrighteous will be made righteous. Because, brothers and sisters, we hear this word in the shadow of the resurrection. We remember that God is exalted in justice and righteousness, leading not to our devastation. God is exalted in justice and righteousness, leading to our resurrection. But, brothers and sisters, never forget this. Never forget this. By his stripes we are healed. But we are not healed from the job of producing justice and righteousness. We are freed and healed for the job of producing justice and righteousness. The servant does not take our injustices on himself to get us off the hook of being the vineyard that God has planted that yields just and righteous fruit in his world The servant suffers for our sakes so that we might become the vineyard that he had always designed us to be. A people who flourish in the world because they produce such sweet fruit of justice and righteousness. This is how the servant leads justice unto victory. This is how Jesus, as the servant, solves the problem of our injustice and unrighteousness. By suffering for our sins and sending us out to bear the fruit for which he has always been calling us. So what now? What for us today who hear this hard word in the midst of this resurrection Easter season? Just two things. First, this passage talks a lot about our injustice and unrighteousness. But what it talks about most, what it lifts up most high is the justice and righteousness of our holy God. So the first thing we do with this message is we gaze on, we look to, we walk with that holy, just, and righteous God. 
brothers and sisters, the secret to becoming the vineyard we were called to be lies in God. So in this season, let us look to him. Let us pray. Let us read his scripture. Let us gather together, even if it's virtually. Let's find ways to remind the people in our household that we are a people called by God into relationship with him as the beloved. Let us in this season, of all seasons, gaze on our king as the just and righteous one. But then secondly, let us go out and strive to bear that just and righteous fruit knowing that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us. And and this is harder in some ways during this strange season of social isolation. But if justice and righteousness is about exercising the power that you have faithfully in community, then all we have to do is ask, where can I serve? Where can I give? Where can I seek justice and righteousness in my situation? And there are so many things that we can do. We can encourage our family members and our friends and our neighbors to listen to the health guidelines that have been given to us and to follow them. Lives will be lost during this period or saved based on whether we practice the social distancing that our medical experts are commending to us. And we can encourage one another to follow those guidelines. And we can also actively serve. Many, many of you just yesterday were serving in the food pantry at Streets, and we can look for ways to partner with the Mid-South Food Bank to help deliver food to the most vulnerable. Christ Community Health Services is an incredible organization offering free COVID-19 testing in some of the poorest communities in our city, and they're looking for volunteers right now, both people with special medical expertise and just regular old folks like me and like you. And we can sign up to help these folks. In fact, if you want to help Christ's community, you can text HELPMEM, all caps, HELP, M-E-M, to 41444 and follow the prompts. And we can pray for one another and encourage one another and call one another and check in on one another and make sure that we as a community get through this together. And we can give sacrificially as much as we can to this church, and to all the organizations in our city and country and world that are on the front lines of seeking justice and righteousness in the midst of this pandemic. And brothers, we do all of this. Brothers and sisters, we do all of this because it's the fruit that we were called to produce in the first place and because we long and desire to bring glory to our just and righteous king, the risen one the Holy One of Israel. Let us go to him now in prayer, asking him that he would send his spirit on us so that we, washed by his blood, might be sent out to produce good fruit. Father, I ask that you would send your spirit on each one of us, that the spirit of your son Jesus would be at work in our bodies and hearts and minds to worship you and to yield good fruit in this difficult season. We love you. We long for your presence. Give us guidance and courage and strength. We praise things in your name. Amen.